0: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised.
1: On this week's Court TV podcast, three months after a Chicago jury found actor and activist Jussie Smollett guilty of a felony for faking a hate crime, he is back in court to hear what his sentence is and like everything else about this story it was controversial court tv's chanley painter was in the courtroom when it happened and will give us a full report
0: this is the court tv podcast with Vinny politan
1: i'm Vinny politan thank you so much for downloading the court tv podcast and listening this episode Jesse Smollett, or Jesse Smollett. Uh, I don't know how to say it. I I say it both ways. I don't know which way is right, which way is wrong, which really is an important point in in all of this because um, before all of this, I had no idea who he was. I didn't know because I I, I didn't watch Empire. For whatever reason, I never really caught on to the show. There's a lot of shows I don't watch, so I never really knew him. Obviously, he's a big star, and for the audience of that show, uh, he was a big, big deal like a really big deal. Uh, but for the rest of society, he he wasn't necessarily a big deal, but now he is because we all know him now. But is he famous? Is he infamous? It's it's just the most bizarre case I think I've ever covered at Court TV. Just strange. Like, why did this even happen? Anyhow, Jesse Smollett has been sentenced and has been... Uh, you know, hopefully, the, the. I don't think the case is over. I don't think this thing will ever be over because he's not letting it go. Um, but when this all was happening, I had one question that I asked my audience on television, which was, why? Why do you think he did all of this? And what fascinated me, and I call it my 13th juror question, and what fascinated me at Jesse Smollett's sentencing was that, The judge answered the question for me, the question that I had. So uh, I have a lot more questions about all of this. Let me bring in Court TV legal correspondent, Chanley Painter, who was in Chicago for all of this. Chanley, great to see you. You know, going into this um, sentencing in in the buildup, it was one of the questions I had um, for, for the audience, the question I would ask my guests. and. And to this day, uh, you know, the judge answered it, and I'm going to play it in just a moment. But to me, that was a big part of this whole scenario with this fake hate crime, this hate crime hoax by this big time star that was so ridiculous. Like, why would he do it?
2: Exactly, Vinny. And he essentially ruined his career coming up with this outlandish, I think you hit the word, uh, ridiculous scheme of what happened. And then he's sticking to his story no matter what. And I think that's really what launches this even further into the realm of bizarre, is that he's still so defiant and sticking by his story and he has those supporters. But why would he do it? Of course, you know, speculation abounded, which was for publicity, that he wanted attention, that he didn't like his contract negotiations with the show Empire at the time. So he wanted to draw attention to himself. And a lot of people are even forgetting that just a couple of days before this staged attack, Vinny, there was a threatening letter that was mailed to his Chicago Empire studios that threatened him uh, and had racist slurs on it. And that's a part of the story. So the speculation was he didn't like the response to that threatened letter. So he took it to the next level and had this attack. But you're right. I think the judge reached the ultimate and correct conclusion, having sit through the trial as to why he may have done this.
1: And, Chandler, you, you bring up a great point with that letter. I did forget about that. Mm-hmm. But it, it seems like, oh, I'll send this letter. All of a sudden it'll be a thing. And then, but it wasn't a thing. No. It wasn't a thing and, until um, this fake hate crime took place so let's listen to the judge um because that's really how he started at the sentencing and the sentencing is the the time of the 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 trial of the case where the judge can finally say something And and the way i perceived the judge at this moment was he did his job fair and impartial you know okay let let Jussie and prosecutors go at it during the trial, let everybody fully litigate it two years for this class four felony case. Right. Which became, you know, the longest, most involved class four felony case in the history of I'm sure this judge's courtroom and most judges courtrooms in Illinois. Um, But then he finally had an opportunity to speak. And it's like I, I could hear him beforehand. He didn't actually say this, but I can hear him in his mind saying, "Okay, are we done here? Are we done here? All right, now, now it's my turn. Let's
3: listen. There's some conjecture you did it for the money. Frankly, I do not believe that you did it for the money. You were making, the evidence showed, close to $2 million a year when this happened. I don't think money motivated you at all. But the only thing I can find is that you really craved the attention and you wanted to get the attention and you were so invested in issues of social justice and you knew that this was a sore spot for everybody in this country. You knew this was a country that was slowly trying to heal uh, past injustices and current injustices and trying to make a better future for each other and it was a hard road. And you took some scabs off some healing wounds and you ripped them apart for one reason. You wanted to make yourself more famous and for a while it worked. Everybody was talking about you. The lights are on you. You were actually throwing a national pity party for yourself. And why would you do such a thing? Why would you, I, I understand, you crave the attention so much, but why would you betray something like social justice issues, which you care so much about? And the only thing I could conclude is that. Is and I acknowledge, there are wonderful sides to you. They're, they're very giving and charitable and loving sides to you. But you have another side of you that is profoundly arrogant and selfish and narcissistic. Wow. Hey,
1: this was... Um... An incredible um, performance by the judge in encapsulating um, what he had experienced for two years in watching this case play out. And you could see it's almost like the judge is venting to a certain extent. I mean, it's all appropriate and legal because you have to give reasons for your, your sentence, but... To me, I mean, he really, really struck a nerve.
2: Oh, he did. And Vinny, we've sat through a lot of sentencing hearings. This took over 30 minutes. This was the judge's time. He had allowed, first of all, cameras in the courtroom. And I think because he wanted to read this and really say what was on his mind during the trial. No cameras allowed, by the way. So he allows cameras in there. I'm sitting on the front row of the courtroom during this hours-long sentencing hearing. And this is the judge's turn to really say, like you said, what he had been thinking. And this is Judge James Lynn. He's someone uh, on the bench who you can read what he's thinking and feeling by his nonverbal reactions throughout the whole day. He's one of those type of judges where he He will react on his face. And so while he read this, just scathing, I mean, scolding to Jesse Smollett, he is looking over to Jesse. He is uh, just bearing it all. And you can tell on Jesse that he didn't like what he was hearing. I mean, the way his body language was, he would nod in disagreement. But it's just something like we really had never seen from a judge. And like you said, it really made sense. He's someone who sat through the trial, this judge. He heard evidence on both sides. He took in all the mitigation and the aggravation. And Came to this conclusion, and there was one point that really raised eyebrows where he he went step by step through the premeditation and the planning of this staged attack. And at one point he goes, you're the one, Jesse, he points at him, you put that noose around your own neck. And he said, I repeat, you put that noose around your own neck. And it was just like, it was just unbelievable to sit there and, and listen to all of that inside the courtroom.
1: And it comes back to that same issue in this case, which is, it was utterly ridiculous what he did and, and damaging, etc. But he really pointed at the, the arrogance and the narcissism. And, and to me, that's a big point. That's a big, big point. Um, why did you do it? Why you did it, um, generally at, at the trial, it's not an element of the crime. You just have to prove that you did do it. You don't have to prove why you did it. Uh, but in this case, I think it was important at the sentencing to understand why he would do it, and and from the judge's perspective, I think he he really nailed it in that it was craving this attention. Because I, as they're sitting here, I could still picture him doing his little sit down interview, mm-hmm. um, and and explaining what happened, and as he's explaining it, you know. When it first when, it, when the news first broke, I think most people have forgotten when the news first broke, he was the victim and there were high profile people super high profile people speaking out against hate crimes and and Jesse was getting all this attention from I mean super high profile people in entertainment and in politics. And I think he liked it. I really think he liked it. You know, here I here I am. I'm 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 important now. And while the judge said it, it it didn't it wasn't about the money, it wasn't gonna hurt him if you're if you're the if you're legitimately the victim of a crime like this because now everyone knows you, everyone feels bad for you, and you become sort of a symbol, you become more important, you become more valuable.
2: Mm-hmm. Exactly, Vinny.
1: And wow. Yeah. Wow. What? Let's listen to the judge now render this sentence, because I really thought it was interesting um, how he did it and how he delivered it. And I want you to describe the scene in the courtroom as this is happening. Let's
3: listen. I'm sentencing you to 30 months felony probation, and the probation is going to be to this court. You're going to be allowed to travel wherever you want. You do not have to live in the state of Illinois. You can report by phone. I know that if you're going to try to make a living and do some of the things you do. You may have to go to uh, other uh, places, New York and Los Angeles. You can do those things. You will pay restitution to the city of Chicago in the amount of $120,106. You are fined $25,000, which is the maximum fine. And you will spend the first 150 days of your sentence in the Cook County Jail. And that will start today, right here, right now right
1: at the end like it it it's fascinating cuz i i listen i you know all the time through for many years listening to judges and the way they deliver the sentences and as he's going i'm like oh okay it's about the fine it's about the probation and then maybe he'll say listen if you violate your probation i'll send you away i'm giving you a, but he went the other direction at the end right boom Not expected.
2: It was like, boom, let's save the best for last, almost. Usually they lead with the harshest, but yeah, that was crazy. And in the courtroom was like, okay, we were typing down there. Okay, we're looking. Okay, that makes sense. Whoa. And we all, our eyes just shot to the defendant. And you could just tell that that was something, you know, I think his defense team had prepared him for, uh, given the fact that he decided not to speak, Vinny, before the judge rendered the sentence. And yet they allowed him, his attorneys, to say what he thought after he was sentenced to jail, which a lot of people, you know, that's controversial here for the defense. They think that this is a low-level felony, it's not normally sentenced to to jail time, and the judge went above what he was supposed to do. But, yeah, that was a shocking moment.
1: It really was. And what I thought would happen was I thought he would get jail time, but I thought the judge would do it. And I've seen this in the past many times. I'm sentencing you to 180 days in jail, but I'm suspending that sentence, right? Which means you're sentenced to jail, but you're not really sentenced Mm -hmm. to jail. So you have the impact of that moment, but he went in the opposite direction rather than off the top saying, you're going to jail and saying, well, you're not really going to jail. He did it like, you're not really going to jail and then sent him to jail, which to me was, was uh, fascinating, Uh, very unusual. uh, But I think he was trying to make his point. And and he made the point. I think doing it that way actually had much more impact because it almost like he lulled uh, Jesse Smollett into a level of comfort and then hit him. And it's starting right now. Right. No staying, waiting for your appeals, which we know will take forever. Right here, right now, you start serving the time. Very very unusual, Chandler.
2: Very unusual, and I think that's just all part of what this judge had planned out like he had he was reading the order of a so this wasn't something that in that five minute break for sentencing that he came up with he had been mulling over what he wanted to sentence jesse smollett to in the weeks leading up to this hearing and i think it was all purposeful and planned he he clearly believed that jesse deserved some sort of severe type of punishment for these low level offenses because of what he outlined in his, his speech, which was the aggravating circumstances, the planning that went into it, the, the way that Jesse Smollett was, in his words, a dark narcissist. And this is something that the judge just wanted to make a statement, and he did so.
1: So when that all happened, I'm like, okay, wow, this is a big headline. Right. This is a big headline. Jesse Smollett goes to jail. But that didn't become the headline. That became the, the secondary part of, of the story and what happened inside the courtroom. Um, because it was the reaction of Jesse Smollett after being sentenced that I could not believe. And there's two parts to it. Let's listen first to part one.
3: You no, know, I would just like to say to your honor that I, uh, I am not suicidal. That's what I would like to say. Okay. I'm not suicidal. Okay.
4: I am not suicidal. I am innocent and I am not suicidal. I am not
1: suicidal. Okay. I got the feeling that was a performance.
2: Mm. Yeah.
1: And I don't, I don't know him. I don't know him, but the and, and maybe that's just because of his years of performing that when he speaks it's always like a performance. You know, he's a singer, he's a he's an actor as well. So, I mean, that's that's in his I think it's in his DNA.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: the way that came across to me was like okay, we need a big finish to the scene. We need something. Um, all right, let's go with this because it was strange. It was
2: bizarre.
1: Like yeah. he's not Jeffrey Epstein.
2: Right. Yeah. Then he, again, I'm sitting in the courtroom, front row, this happens. And I've never seen this before. I'm sure you have in your career in as many courtrooms as you've been in, but an outburst from a defendant without his attorneys, you know, calming him down, making him sit down, stop talking. They allowed him. If you look at um, his lead attorney, Ninye Uche, sitting there, he, it's just like he doesn't even hear Jesse Smollett uh, standing up as he's t- telling uh, the court what is on his mind. And as you said, it does come across very dramatic. I know he's an actor. I get that. But I think I'm sitting in the courtroom, though, Vinnie, from my perspective. It was almost as if sitting there listening to the judge speak directly to him not mincing words that was like bubbling up inside. I you could just kind of feel it in his body language as I looked at Jesse Smollett. And he he just blew the top. It just, it just came to a head right there when he had an opportunity to say what was on his mind. Now what he said threw me for a loop. I don't know about you, but when he started yelling, I am not suicidal, I was like, I was trying to make sense of that in the moment in the courtroom, because maybe I missed something in the judge's sentencing him to prison. Maybe there was some sort of precaution that the judge said about having protective or, you know, the, the mental this part of the, I didn't know. I thought I had missed something. It wasn't making sense for a few seconds. And then I realized as his family, which the camera didn't show in the gallery many started echoing what he was saying so as Jesse Smollett stands during his outburst his family in the gallery starts to stand along with him they raise their fist in the air they're echoing exactly what he's saying he's talking to them if you look if you watch it he's talking to his family and it became clear that the message he was saying was to his family that if anything happens to me I'm not suicidal please don't believe what you hear family and they were supporting him in that moment it was just it was Wild. It was wild.
1: Really wild. And, and, and I guess to some extent, I get it right. You're high profile. You feel like you're a victim and you're like, I don't know what's going to happen when I go to jail, but I know I would not take my own life. So don't believe it. Uh, But uh, it's bizarre in that moment to do it. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously it's something that he could say to his family through his attorneys. He said, listen, tell my Apparently, you know, I'm not suicidal. Can you let him know? But so, yes, well, it was to his family in that moment. It was also like for the rest of the world to hear. Which, yeah. Again, and I said that was part one because, I mean, that was a big moment. But then but then you have to finish the whole scene. So as he's taken into custody and escorted out of the courtroom to the Cook County Jail, which, by the way, is a rough jail. Mm, it is, yeah. This is not a country club. This is one of the roughest jails in the nation the Cook County jail. Uh let's listen to him on his way out of the courtroom.
4: I am not suicidal. I am not suicidal and I'm innocent. I could have said that I was guilty a long time ago.
1: Yeah, he could have. And if he had, he wouldn't be going to jail. Right. I mean, that's the other part of this, right, Chanley? I mean, this is a a class 4, Mr. If if he admitted to it, if he said, Yeah, I did it, it was bad judgment, I, I lost my mind, I'm going for some counseling, I'm working on things. If he had done that, mm-hmm. right, there's no way he would have gone to jail. I've, I've seen it. I mean, someone who's uh, taking responsibility and doing something to get better is not going to go to jail. Yeah. It's just not gonna, I mean, he might still get some sort of a fine, uh, there might still be restitution. He's not going to jail,
2: but that's his story, Vinny. He's sticking to it <laughs> all the way to jail. But you're right; that was one of the factors the prosecutor brought up, and the judge even in sentencing, and that no contrition uh, at all in his part for this. He's maintaining that he was innocent, and in that moment, yeah, the second outburst, the final scene. You know, he's being escorted out of the courtroom, and turns they almost have to grab him and pull him out of the well of the courtroom. And you can hear, I maybe could hear his sister, one of his sisters, uh, again, they're standing supporting him in this outburst. She yells, you know, quit locking up our black men. And that's a whole nother, you know, a lot of themes that we're hearing from the defense and his family, that this was also about race, that they think, you know, if he had been a white man uh, that had done what he did, uh, he would not be going to jail. So that's another factor that really, I think, stemmed the root of his outburst in that moment as well.
1: Well, I, well the judge also talked about his two days of testimony where he said he uh you know on the on the witness stand committed hour after hour of mm-hmm. perjury right he wasn't charged with perjury uh, could still potentially be charged with perjury but I don't think they'll they'll go there and, and waste their time with that but because uh, he testified in his own defense and basically you know said his story the the same story he's been telling all along which just flies in the face in the the face of all of the obvious facts in this case, which don't add up. But that was the other thing that really got under the judge's skin was his uh, testimony. Well, you know, it can't be used against you to exercise your right to testify, but you have a right to testify. You don't have the right to commit perjury. There's a difference.
2: Right. And the judge sums it up, like you said, hour upon hour upon hour. He was on the stand, I believe, more than nine hours, eight or nine hours. It was over the course of two days, being that he testified before his own jury, trying to explain his side of the story. And it not only did the judge not like that he was Committing perjury, lying on the stand, but it was also, according to the judge, the way that he came across on the stand very narcissistic and arrogant was the word that the judge, I believe, the judge used in his testimony. And he even called out the prosecutor for using a racist slur, quoting uh, during the cross examination, and just went like stop the testimony, called him out on it, told him you shouldn't be using that word; it's disrespectful. And the judge used that as an example to show what he said was the extreme. Um, hypocrisy of Jesse Smollett, that he's staged this hate crime, alleging racist, homophobic slurs, but yet he's, his whole life has really revolved around standing up for social issues and fighting against that type of thing. He uses the very thing that he's built his life around to, uh, to, to lie about and to use for self-promotion. And that really struck a nerve with this judge.
1: Absolutely. So um, again, he, so the the sentence is a probationary sentence, but in our system, judges can sentence people um, to jail, which, you know, jail versus prison. So he's not going to state prison, but he's going to the local jail, which actually is probably a worse place to be, is, is the local jail. But the time cannot exceed a year. So it's a condition of his probation. Part of his probation um, is spent in jail. And it's very common. I mean, across the nation, judges do it each and every day. Sometimes they'll suspend it, but uh, like here, 150 days, he'll probably end up serving, I don't know, about half of it, because I think you get uh, good time behavior as long as you stay out of trouble uh, one day for every day served. So, all right, Chanley Painter's going to stay with us, because the next reaction we have to talk about, which again, surprised me and chanley's alluded to it what happened inside the courtroom which but the reaction of, of jesse smollett's family afterwards and his attorney afterwards we'll let you hear what they had to say when we come back We are talking about Jesse Smollett and his uh, sentence to jail, 150 days, his reaction in the courtroom. And now I want to move on to the reaction outside of the courtroom. Chanley Painter, Court TV legal correspondent, still with me. She was there inside the courtroom uh, and there for this entire hearing, this bizarre day in, in criminal justice. Um, how how would you, if, if, if someone came up to you and said, um, how would you describe what we just saw inside that courtroom if they had never seen a, a, a proceeding in our country? And this is the first one that they ever saw. How would you describe what happened that day in Chicago?
2: Atypical, maybe. It, it seemed to go along an expected line, right? I mean, the sentencing hearing starts with the defense arguing a motion for a new trial and the prosecution responding. That gets a little tedious. but. A sentencing hearing that calls so many witnesses and mitigation, we really don't see that too often. This was an over five-hour sentencing hearing for a very low-level felony, right? This wasn't a death penalty trial or first-degree murder conviction. This was a very low-level felony. In fact, it's a misdemeanor in most states, many, what he was convicted of. So that is a bit atypical But the the conclusion of it is absolutely rare and bizarre. I don't know about you, Vinny. I'd like to hear if you've ever heard of a defendant who has had such an outburst without being called down by the judge or his attorneys or the bailiffs in the courtroom or just allowed to do. He could have have stood up as long as he wanted to, it seemed like, in the courtroom to say whatever he wanted to say. So I'm anxious if you've ever even, in your experience, witnessed that inside of a courtroom.
1: No, not. and, And you bring up a great point, which is the lack of response. Right? From, mm-hmm. the, from the judge. Many judges will say, calm down, keep your voice down. Or judge let him go. Right. The judge let the family go in the back. You're speaking from the gallery while the judge is on the bench? Are you kidding me? So this judge showed mm-hmm. uh, while he, he sentenced Smollett uh, to 150 days and, and, you know, tongue lashing, et cetera, all of that, uh, he, he really demonstrated extreme patience and tolerance. Um, for some of the outbursts. I mean, there were some judges that I appeared in front of when I was practicing. If you did that, you would have gotten locked up from the gallery. And Mm -hmm. we've seen it on court TV where members of the gallery have been held in contempt. So uh, I thought he showed some great Mm -hmm. patience there. He understood how emotional this was for everyone. Uh, So I applaud the judge there as well, because things did not seem to be dangerous. They were disrespectful, but not dangerous. Right. So Let's listen now to Jesse Smollett's brother because I've been equally shocked by the response and reaction of the family. And I understand, like, I've covered murder trials where the evidence was overwhelming that a one parent murdered another parent and the child will never believe that evidence. I get that. Um, but I wasn't necessarily expecting this because this is uh, Jesse's brother, and I'm sure he loves his brother to death, and they're a tight family, which is also... Another part of the case, as the judge pointed out, I mean, this is not a guy who comes from a, he comes from a great family. He's an amazing, amazing family and and tight knit. And I think that probably is why they're reacting the way they are because they are so tight knit and supporting each other no matter what. But it still surprised me. Let's listen. My
4: brother does not deserve this. I watched my brother go from being a complete victim, which he still is. He was attacked. And he is now going to jail for being attacked. I saw my brother get locked up within two weeks for being attacked. Do you know how crazy that is? They want to say in that court and say they want to say in that court and say that he's the reason why folks aren't going to report hate crimes. They're the reason why folks aren't going to report hate crimes. Because none of you believed it. None of y'all believed it. We have letters from the NAACP, President Derek Johnson himself. We have letters from Rainbow Push Coalition. We have letters from the Innocence Project, all saying that he should not be in jail. And they put him in jail. That judge chastised him. He chastised my brother. He does not deserve this. He was attacked. Do people never once think, even the folks who are naysayers, do you ever once think what happens if, if he's telling the truth? he's telling the truth. Do y'all ever think about how poorly you feel in that situation? He's in jail for five months. That is unacceptable. For being attacked, it is not. It is not his fault that folks are not going to believe survivors anymore. He is a survivor, and he has been completely mistreated. And this is. This has to stop.
1: Wow. Wow. It. it you know, and he cites the uh, the NAACP and the um, Rainbow Coalition, saying that he doesn't deserve jail. But I wonder if those organizations have come out and said that he's a victim? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Chanley, do you know the answer to that? I, I'm putting you on the spot here, I know, but I'm not, I know that they were clearly advocating for him to not go to jail, but were they saying, listen, no, he's an innocent man and he's a victim in all this. He's a victim of
2: a hate crime. You know, I was in the courtroom when those letters were read. I mean, Justice Smollett had letters from, like they said, NAACP, Reverend Jesse Jackson with the Rainbow Push Coalition, uh, famous actors, you know, uh, uh, um, Samuel L. Jackson, excuse me, I forgot his name for a second. Um, Letters that were read. That's powerful for this defendant to have that type of support, but there was nothing in those letters that were read in front of the court that said he was Innocent or a victim, they were advocating for leniency and mercy, and that they support and stand by him and believe him. Um, and it, you know, it came across as in a way that this was a low-level felony that shouldn't deserve jail. In these letters, and again, going back to the theme of the family, which is you know people of color are disproportionately locked up as to uh, others, and that they, this judge should not continue that sort of trend especially with something like this, a low-level felony conviction.
1: Okay. So it's the family. Okay. So you, you, your family is believing you and supporting you unconditionally. Um, I, you know, I can't, I, I can't attack them for that, but they're attacking others for, for not buying the same lines from their brother.
2: Well, blood is thicker than water, right, Vinny? I mean, if your sibling alleged a certain type of an assault and looked you in the eye and said, it is true, would you have his or her back? I mean, that's kind of what we're dealing with here. And these these family members, I mean, you can just feel their passion. You know, I was standing to speed of them during the press conference, sitting next to them in the in the courtroom, their anger, very much palpable. And you can see that, you can hear that in the voice of his brother, Joel, there at the press conference, still just behind, just 110%. You mentioned his family, I and mean, he comes from a great family. I mean, such talent in that family, his siblings, the support they have. His 92-year-old grandmother on her walker walks into the courtroom to testify on behalf of her grandson, regardless of the convictions and what is said about him. And that just is a huge statement on behalf of Justice malletton who his family thinks he is.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, the judge had another line here, you know, you don't judge someone by their worst day, right? But this but this has been more than a day. This has been a couple of years worth, right? <laughs> you know, there, there was... Three years. Yeah. So it's, you know, sometimes there are crimes where, you know, you lose control for a moment or you do something really stupid in the moment or you do something very criminal in the moment. and You do something you should not, but you've lived this other part of your life. and And I could see how a judge in that circumstance can say, okay, yeah, let me look at the rest of your life. And this one momentary lapse. But this is, to me, this is more than a momentary lapse because, it, you know, we, we heard it in the courtroom, the defiance, the the um, lack of admission. and And it's not just saying, I didn't do it. It's, I'm a victim. I'm a victim. I'm a victim. And and then you hear it from the family and the family going after the judge saying, we don't do this. We don't go after people like this in 2022. And I, and I heard the brother say that. I'm like, well, wait a minute. That's, that's the judge's job. The judge's job is to sentence convicted felons. And you don't like sweet talk about the felons. It's like, it was like Smollett's family was upset that they the judge was speaking poorly about their their brother at his criminal sentencing, <laughs> like that's what a judge has to do. He has to give a basis for why he is sending him number one to jail and sentencing him to thirty months and you know uh ordering restitution for one hundred twenty he has to build the record and give a basis and and he took it offensively like it's like it's not politically correct to talk ill of those convicted of crimes in a courtroom. I don't, and I don't think uh, the, the family understands how it works in criminal courtrooms.
2: Right, and then the judge wasn't the one that convicted Jesse Smollett. The judge is operating under the conviction, five felony conviction. That's how he's treating Jesse Smollett and talking to him because he is abiding by the jury's verdict. The family has issues with it and go to the jury. They're the ones that said through the evidence and came to this unanimous decision to convict him on those counts. And we see that, that's typical in courtroom, right? The judge who sentences, the, the judge's hands are tied by the conviction, the sentencing guidelines, or the ranges of sentencing. And, and he had every right to impose what he did. He was well within the bounds. I mean, look at what he was convicted of, and he, I mean, it's up to three years per conviction. It could have been up to 15 years under certain extreme circumstances. So to consider that, he did get only 150 days and of some restitution. The judge had every right to do that under the circumstances.
1: Okay, let's listen now to the reaction of the attorney for Jesse Smollett.
2: Obviously, any defense attorney would not want their client
4: to talk. Uh, and, of course, Jesse is a man. You know and, and i and and he's a human being and i, I and i say he's a man i'm not saying if he was a woman it's a bit different but my point is he's a grown adult and and at the end of the day he was expressing himself to what he saw or felt was an unfair sentence I, and i cannot sit here today and tell you that if i was in that position getting sentenced twice for the same offense i probably would probably react the same way so so listen i'm not here to tell people oh he should have sat down and and kept quiet and sobbed. no i mean the sentence is ridiculous and he had a right to express it that's my opinion
1: all right that's the why of it and and something he said there chanley before we uh, wrap up here Mm -hmm. if i was getting sentenced twice for the same offense Mm -hmm. this case had a strange procedural history so At this point, this thing may not be over. He's got the money to fully litigate it. So uh, from my perspective, I would not be shocked with any new development in this case. Uh, But in the meantime, he's still in jail.
2: Right. He's still in jail. And his attorney there was addressing, like you said, the history. He was first indicted and charged. That was dismissed. And he forfeited his $10,000 but bail at that time in payment of this. So they're considering the defense perspective. That was punishment for what happened in that agreement. And again, that was argued in a motion for a new trial. We expect this not to be the end of those arguments for the appeal of his convictions. But in the meantime, he does remain in the Cook County Jail. He is in protective custody at the request of Smollett and of course the jail given his high profile status. Uh, and that's that's also been an issue uh, in these days. They're trying to get him out of jail ASAP Benny. Uh, for covid for uh safety reasons all kinds of reasons uh, they're trying to get him released early
1: and we shall stay on top of it at court tv chanley painter of course always on top of it thank you so much chanley appreciate it thanks nanny all right when we come back i will let you know why this case gets under my skin and why i believe that jail was actually necessary
0: Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV and go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area.
1: The Jussie Smollett saga and case has really gotten under my skin. And and it has because of the damage that it has ultimately done, but it really begins with the defendant himself, Jesse Smollett, and how he refuses to admit anything. Right? Well, defendant doesn't have to admit anything, but he takes it one step further and continues to claim that he is the victim. So I just want to take a moment for those of you who may have forgotten some of the facts here to walk you through why this was the most ridiculous story ever. You know, if they make a movie out of this, it should be the most ridiculous story ever told. Um, first of all, this attack. When did this, this attack take place? In the streets of Chicago, in the early morning hours, near a subway sub shop, in the midst of a polar vortex, okay? It's like the coldest night ever, right? The coldest night ever for people to be out looking to lynch that famous actor from the program Empire. Like, wh- why would you be out in the middle of a pol- polar vortex? That's, that's, that, to me, that struck me as absurd, As absurd as people walking around the streets of Chicago, all right, Chicago, that's where all this is taking place, screaming out, this is MAGA country, because number one, it's not MAGA country, right? And number two, who would be out in the middle of the night in the midst of a polar vortex in Chicago screaming, this is MAGA country? And oh, by the way, they're also carrying a noose. Come on. Come on. Now, the other part of this story that is ridiculous is that he he said they were wearing masks, but one of the attackers was white. They're not white. They're from Nigeria. Nigeria. Both of them, they're brothers.
3: Absurd.
1: He specifically identified his attacker as being white. I mean, do you need more than that? Do you really need more than that? How do you mess that up? Like, maybe you don't know, you didn't see the color of their skin, but he specifically said, I saw their white skin. Then he didn't recognize their voices. he knew these guys, like you know them, you know who they are, and you didn't recognize their voices and I'm wondering you wouldn't recognize their accents either and if and and if this story is true, do we really think these these two brothers are MAGA? I mean, they could be. They could be. But we saw them on video when they were buying their red hats, which weren't actually MAGA hats. They were just red hats that kind of looked like MAGA hats. Oh, and by the way, he was also DMing, sending direct messages to his attackers. Like, really? Like, How how does all that work out? How does that work out? Like you're you're direct messaging the attackers and you claim that you were surprised and you were a victim of a racist homophobic attack here. And then the other part that's ridiculous to me, once I saw a picture of these two guys, is that somehow he's able to fight them off. These two guys are huge. I mean, that's how he got to know one of them. There is like a, a trainer of his. And these guys are huge. They are big. Muscle upon muscle. They look like professional wrestlers. And Jussie Smollett by himself fought off these two guys. And then the absurdity don't forget the body cam footage of the officer who ultimately responds and comes to his apartment, and he still has the noose around his neck and the sandwich from Subway that he bought. So the other. The other part of this is he is the one who made this a big story, right? It wasn't like, oh my goodness, you know, you know people made this a big made a big deal out of this. No, he made it a big deal. He's the one that did the emotional interview on the morning show with Robin Roberts speaking out and 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 by doing that you are. You are outing and attacking and challenging the Chicago Police Department to solve this crime because on the streets of Chicago, we have these racist men walking around with nooses, lynching people in the name of MAGA. Of course, you know, the police are going to go all out to try to find and solve this case. It's because of what you did. And you tried to embarrass the police because you didn't think it was going to get solved, obviously. Now, let me tell you what the real big problem is with all of this, is that hate crimes are real. But there are some people who don't think it's a real problem. Right? It's, it's a real problem that society needs to handle and take care of. But there is a, a, a faction of society, I don't know how large it is, that doesn't think it's a big priority. Doesn't think it's a big deal, hate crimes, that it's overplayed by the media, etc. And by staging a hate crime hoax on such a high in such a high profile way, the damage you have done is number one. The people who need to be convinced that this is a real problem, will now never be convinced this is a real problem. How much of a problem can it be if you need to stage these things? Right? So you're never going to get those people on board. So now there'll be less attention by society as a whole paid to fighting hate crime and dealing with hate crimes because of you. And now when true victims of hate crimes come forward, there's a whole bunch of people who will look at them very skeptically, not believe them, take it with a grain of salt and say, yeah, whatever. I, got the, the, the reaction will be, yeah, I wonder if this one's real. It's be- And it's because of you, Jussie Smollett. And, and that's why, to me, this crime goes beyond, oh, it's just a fourth degree or it's a, uh, you know, Level four felony. No, 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 no. The impact has been much greater, which from my perspective means the deterrence needs to be even greater. The deterrence to deter you from doing it again and to deter anyone else from engaging in this ridiculous hate crime hoax conduct, which undermines real victims and undermines the the fight against hate crimes. Because as I said, there's a, there's a whole faction of society now that will never come on board to join that fight because of you, Jesse Smollett. So that's my take on, on why this was an unusual case that needed the type of sentence that was delivered by the judge inside the courtroom. Hopefully the lesson is learned by Jesse Smollett. Probably not. But hopefully it deters others from engaging in this kind of conduct. All right, folks, that's it for this week's podcast. I'm Vinnie Politan. I have a show every night, 8 to 10 on Court TV, 8 to 10 Eastern, then 8 to 10 uh, Pacific Coast time uh, on the the left coast. Um, You can watch me every night, 8 to 10. And if you don't... Know where to find Court TV The Network. You can go to CourtTV.com. We've got a find us tab and you click on your state and you'll see where we're we are available. We're always available at CourtTV.com streaming. We have an app. And if you have a digital antenna, make sure you have recently rescanned it so you can find our signal. I'm Vinny Politan. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And as always, don't forget
0: to hug the kids.